Well, good morning. My name is Bob Vogelar, and I'm a part of the teaching team, and every once in a while um, have the opportunity and the privilege to, uh, to come and teach. So if you are visiting with us, um, just know our first-string quarterback will be back next week. You'll be back on track. Um, today's passage is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, and it's a passage uh, about suffering. And before I dive into reading that, I want to talk about suffering a little bit, because suffering at the hands of others can take on many different forms. In fact, you're only a quick Google search away using terms like ISIS and Christian missionary, and you'll get heartbreaking and horrific accounts in the news of believers and their families who have suffered even to the point of death. And then you've got the kind of suffering that we're more likely to experience here in Liberty. It's nowhere to the extent that's described in these news accounts, but Yet many of us still have accounts of being hurt or wronged by others as we seek to follow the Lord. I've seen uh, brothers and sisters uh, who have been antagonized by uh, atheists threatening legal action merely because they're a Christian and a school teacher. And I've seen um, milder forms where people are just uh, made fun of or ridiculed in their work environment, nonetheless for being a believer Well, our passage this morning talks about suffering at the hands of non-believers. Peter doesn't get into a ranking of experiences as if to say that some are more real or more important than others. Rather, he deals with the topic of suffering as if all the different kinds are equally symptomatic of the same thing. We are at war with an enemy who wants nothing more than for us to stop seeking after those who are apart from Christ. I think that's why Peter begins this passage by telling us to arm ourselves as if we're going into battle. Let's dive into the passage this morning, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with that same attitude, because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing in detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter is telling these followers of Christ, and he's telling us today to change our perspective toward suffering and toward those who cause us to suffer. Specifically, he's addressing suffering heaped upon the believer by non-believers who don't get the new life the believer is compelled to live. Peter is essentially telling us that having an unbreakable perspective 
means being armed with a proper backward perspective. It means we are to engage others from a proper forward perspective, and it means that we are to be motivated out of a proper relational perspective. And I want to draw our attention to these three things in the passage this morning. First, having an unbreakable perspective means being armed with a proper backward perspective. Now, what do I mean by this? In verse 1, Peter says that we are to arm ourselves with Christ's same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now, that's an interesting statement to make, because early in my relationship with Christ, I experienced suffering at the hands of friends of mine who didn't understand why I lost interest in doing the things that we once enjoyed doing together. Yet I've been a Christian for 28 years, and I still sin. I can't say I'm done with sin. I still blow it. But I think what Peter is getting at here can be seen specifically by looking at his use of the word, therefore. You know, therefore is one of those words that when we see it in the text, we should immediately stop when we're studying God's word and ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And the reason for this is the word therefore simply means for that reason or for that cause. In other words, what is about to be read is written because the preceding writing triggered it. The verses just before verse 1 are specifically about Christ's death and resurrection. Peter is saying that suffering like Christ to the point of death means we emerge resurrected on the other side of eternity with Christ. And guess what? When that happens, we are done with sin. Peter is arguing that for that reason, death is not something to be feared when we're encountering abuse and suffering. So as a result, Peter is telling us to arm ourselves with Christ's attitude towards suffering. Peter is reminding his fellow Christ followers to look backward at Christ's life and death and resurrection and then have Christ's attitude about suffering. The Greek word here translated as attitude means thoughtful intent. Christ was very thoughtful and intentional about his obedience on the cross. His obedience didn't happen accidentally. In other words, as you go through life, partner with the work of the Holy Spirit and live with his strategic unfolding plan to change the eternity of lost people around you, even the ones who are heaping abuse on you. So what was Christ's attitude that we are to arm ourselves with? Paul goes into detail on this same topic in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So turn there with me. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul reveals in this passage that Christ's attitude towards suffering was focused on two interrelated truths. Verses 6 through 8, the first part of that passage, deal with the magnitude of Christ's suffering, while verses 9 through 11 deal with the magnificence of Christ's suffering. So regarding the magnitude, 
Paul identifies that Christ was in a place of being in very nature God, yet willingly left equality with God to walk humbly among us. You see, Christ's suffering wasn't just a death on a cross. It also included departing from an eternal and perfect oneness with the Father forever and ever in order to have God forsake him. Think about that for a minute. Jesus left eternal oneness with a good, good father to have that father turn his back on him so that the full weight of all of our past, present, and future sins would be blamed on him. And as a result, Jesus bore the fullness of God's wrath so that you and I, who have put our faith in him, don't have that wrath on us. Imagine for a minute the enormity of that magnitude of suffering. You know, the reality is we can try to imagine it, but that's all we can do. Our best imagination in reality has to pale in comparison. We can't truly fathom the fullness of God's wrath upon us when we don't have the ability to really uh, to compare it to anything in our own experience. So try as we might, we just fall short of really understanding the magnitude of that suffering. Perhaps that's why God also allowed a horrible beating and humiliating mockery and a crucifixion to go with it. Perhaps that physical grueling experience is something we can more easily imagine. I've identified just a few verses of the many that give a glimpse into the magnitude of Christ's suffering. The first is in Isaiah 53. Now the prophet wrote this some 700 years before Christ in order to set the stage for God's unfolding redemptive plan. And he says this, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 and verse 10. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Another passage in Matthew 26 This passage describes Christ's final hours before he is betrayed by Judas and arrested. And it goes like this. Then Jesus told his disciples, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Understandably, Jesus didn't want to have to go through what he knew was about to happen. He petitioned God for any other way. If there was any other way to accomplish this reconciliation between you and your people, Lord, can we please do that instead? In fact, Luke 22, verse 44, helps us understand the level of anguish during these times of prayer. Luke writes, And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And yet the torture hadn't even begun. You see, anyone who thinks that faith in Jesus is only a way to get to God must have cut these passages out of their Bible. 
Because that's exactly what Jesus is asking for. Another way. Any other way that might spare him the magnitude of what he knows is about to happen. And I guarantee you, the magnitude on his mind had more to do with God turning his back on him than it did any of the beatings. Yet in perfect obedience, Jesus submits to God's will because he knows it is the only way to reconcile us to God. Matthew 27, 29-31 details the beating and mocking that preceded his crucifixion. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head repeatedly. After they had mocked him, they led him away to crucify him. And I'm not even getting into the passages that depict the flogging, the actual nailing of him to the cross. Christ endured an unimaginable magnitude of suffering. And Peter in this passage is telling us to arm ourselves with Christ's thoughtful intent, his kind of purposeful obedience, even as we face suffering. You may be wondering, how can I say there's any magnificence in this kind of suffering? Well, here are just three verses to illustrate what is magnificent about Christ's suffering. Paul writes in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The Greek word translated reconciled in this passage actually means a complete reconciliation. Nothing more needs to be added to what Christ did to present us to God holy in his sight. And Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then Jesus himself in John 10, 28 and 29 says that he is the only one who gives eternal life. And because of this, nothing can snatch us out of God's hand. The magnificence of Christ's suffering is found in the permanence of salvation that his suffering accomplished for all of us who believe. You see, Christ was obedient to death, even death on a cross, because he knew that it was God's eternal purpose to reconcile to himself those of us who put our faith in him. The suffering had a magnificent eternal glory that would exalt our Heavenly Father to His rightful place of praise. That magnificent glory that rightfully belongs to God was the motivating factor for Christ to step forward in obedience to the point of death. Peter is telling us that when we arm ourselves with that kind of backward-looking perspective into Christ's attitude about suffering, we start viewing suffering differently. Consequently, our appetite for the things that matter to God increases and our appetite for sin decreases. But Peter isn't only talking about arming ourselves with a proper backward perspective. He wants us to do that in order to engage others with a proper forward perspective. 
You see, in Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 5 through 7 and 7 through 11, Peter details the justification for us to engage both non-believers and believers with a proper forward-looking perspective. And verses 2 through 4 set this up nicely. Peter writes, As a result, a believer armed with Christ's attitude towards suffering does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Verse 3 says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And then he goes into some examples of that. In verse 4 he says, They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Non-believers can be intolerant of believers. And the degree of intolerance is vast. This is not a new thing. It's been happening for 2,000 plus years. So when Peter writes in verse 5, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, we might rush to assume that Peter is saying, don't lose heart from the abuse because what goes around comes around. But I'll tell you what, a look at the context tells you that this is not some karma theology. Karma theology doesn't fit the context of Scripture. In fact, Peter's purpose for 5 through 7 is not for us to provoke non-believers with an attitude that their day is coming. You see, Peter is actually saying something completely different about the judgment that's coming to those who heap abuse on you. He's saying that the reality of this judgment on the non-believer should motivate us to persevere for the sake of their eternal destiny. In the midst of any abuse they can heap on us, even if that abuse is to the point of death. I wrote this next slide as a question. So you mean Peter's purpose is not to provoke, but to persevere? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. And that's important because our nature is to start hating those who hate us. And Peter's saying something completely different. He writes in verse 5, Those who heap abuse on you will have to give account. But notice immediately following in verse 6, he says, For this reason the gospel was preached. He doesn't say, For this reason you can rest assured they'll get what's coming to them. No, he emphatically shifts to the urgent need to persevere in preaching the gospel, despite what you and I may have to suffer. You see, the reality of what awaits those who heap abuse on us, if we have a proper backward perspective, should motivate us to preach the message of hope that will change the course of their eternity. And verse 7 puts an urgent exclamation point on this need to persevere in preaching to them despite the abuse. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. You see, there's only a short window of time to persevere in this work. Because their life and ours will end soon. And for some it could end very soon. Either because Jesus is returning or because death has us exiting. Either way we cannot afford to wait in preaching the gospel. And many times we preach it with the way we behave toward those who are abusing us. I believe that's why Peter pivots in verses 7 through 11 where, he focuses, where his focus is now on the church individually and corporately as a body of believers. In verses 7, 11, 7 through 11, Peter tells us to pray. He tells us to love deeply, to offer hospitality to each other without grumbling, to use our gifts, 
to speak as if God is speaking, to serve with God's energy working in us. In other words, Peter tells us to partner with the Holy Spirit in the work God has prepared for us to do. Peter writes for us to be clear-minded and self-controlled so we can pray. Peter knows that if we fill our mind with the things of this world and we aren't disciplined about uh, how we interact with the world, we tend to avoid prayer. We drift away from engaging God. And those times when we do pray, it tends to be about temporal stuff and not about the things that matter most to the heart of the Father. What's your prayer life look like? Are they filled with the names of non-believers who treat you poorly? Are you praying for the eternity of those who might be abusing you? Clear-mindedness and self-control gets us on the same page with God. His desires become our desires. And what God desires most is directly connected to the magnificence of Christ's suffering. 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us God wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, lost people matter to God. And when we're clear-minded and self-controlled, lost people matter to us too. We pray for them individually and collectively among the body of believers. We love each other more deeply. We offer hospitality without grumbling. We serve with joy because we are using our gifts. We speak and serve in partnership with the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter also knows that when believers pray, love deeply, offer hospitality, serve within our gifting and partner with God in the way we speak and with His energy working through us to reach non-believers, then we end up creating a contagiously attractive place for both believers and non-believers to want to be. You see, instead of repelling non-believers away from the church, making statements like, if that's what following Christ is, I don't want any part of it. The opposite happens. And people say, there's something different about you. And I am attracted to that. But even more so than that, how Peter finishes verse 11 tells us the real reason behind this urgency to preach the gospel even to those who abuse us. And that's in verse 11. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to close our time this morning by looking at the third unbreakable truth that comes from a passage like this. You see, having an unbreakable perspective also means being motivated out of a proper relational perspective. You know, as I prepared this message, as I spent time in in God's Word, I found myself becoming overwhelmed by all the things I have to do to live up the expectations in this passage and in other passages. There's a lot in God's Word of what to do and what not to do as a follower of Christ, and it can be daunting. It's hard to persevere when the abuse we get from others hurts so deeply. And now I'm supposed to have this perspective and do these things as part of a body of believers, even when the world around us becomes more hostile toward us. It's hard to love those who are out to hurt us, let alone live that way continually. And I fail at it far too often. But I want you to notice something. I mentioned earlier about Peter's use of the word therefore. And when that happens, we ask ourselves, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, Peter uses the word therefore twice in this passage, in verses 1 and 7. Remember, what follows the word therefore is justified by what comes before it. What comes before these therefores? 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, and 1 Peter 4, 
5 through 7. These two sets of verses detail what Christ has done for us and what awaits those who die apart from him. You see, Peter's instruction for us to persevere in the midst of suffering and urgently preach the gospel actually follows an important reminder of what Christ did for us. That if Christ had not died for us, if he had not been obedient to the magnitude of his suffering, a dreadful judgment would also be awaiting us. Let that reality compel us to live differently toward those who might be heaping abuse on us. You see, when we consider how incredibly irresistible the grace is that redeems us, what emerges is a sense of gratitude so deep that we should do nothing less than give Christ all of us in return. When we live like this, we don't have to focus on the things that we are supposed to do as Christians. Instead, our focus is only on knowing the one who would save us. When we do that, a new desire emerges, a desire to surrender our lives to such a good, good father. Now, you might be thinking, wait, Bob, you don't understand. I hurt so deeply that it's not possible for me to forgive the person that's caused that pain. Or you might be thinking, you know, but Bob, you don't understand. I've already blown it so badly that there's no way God would give me a second chance. For me, it's too late. But I want you to remember, the same Peter who wrote this letter is the, is the Peter who knows a thing or two about suffering abuse at the hands of others. And he knows a thing or two about letting down our Savior. Remember the two sides of Peter's life? God finished with a di- very different Peter at the end of his life than the one he started with. Over the course of Peter's 35 to 40 year relationship with Christ, he went from being a self-seeking and temporal oriented person to being a self-sacrificing and eternally oriented person. What made the difference? After all, the Peter who denies Jesus three times is the same Peter we see in Acts 5.41, rejoicing because he has been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. The difference is seen in John chapter 21. Specifically, verses 15 through 19. You see, Peter at this time had already denied Christ three times. In fact, Jesus was brutally killed after those denials, and Peter was now confronted with an almost overwhelming sorrow for failing Jesus. He thought it was over, that the one he had walked with and fallen in love with was gone forever. This passage picks up with Jesus having been resurrected, talking with Peter for the first time since Peter's denials. Imagine the awkwardness of that encounter. And this is what it says. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old... You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
Having an unbreakable perspective means all of what Peter writes about here is motivated out of a proper relational perspective with the one who redeemed us. When we are in fellowship with Christ, we are forgiven. We are redeemed. If you think anything is separating you from knowing Christ to really falling in love with our Savior, just know that God longs to close that gap. The natural outcome of knowing Christ is falling in love with Christ. And when we fall in love with Christ, we find ourselves naturally doing what pleases Him. Do you want to know Christ more? Then seek Him right now on this very issue. I've asked Brian to close with a song and allow us some time to just pause and reset. You can sing along or you can bow your head and pray. You can reflect and have a conversation with our good, good Father. Regardless of when you first began your walk with Christ, or even if you haven't started one yet, Christ is ready to invite you into an intimate fellowship with Him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father,